Neil, it's so great to see you this morning and to have you on my podcast, uh, Psyche. I'm really excited about getting this chance to know you better and to explore some of the work you've done, thinking about Eric Fromm and then Jordan Peterson and how they connect and, and, and the ways that they're different. And yeah, I'm, I'm just super excited about this conversation and, and, and look forward to see where it goes. Thrilled to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah. Okay. So, Neil, would you start by just maybe giving the listeners a sense of kind of who you are and kind of what you're up to professionally? And then from there, we can jump into the conversation. I, uh, I teach sociology, sociological theory at McMaster University in uh, Hamilton, Ontario. So I'm a sociologist and theorist. Nice. And, and how, I guess one of the things that I'm always kind of curious about is how people get into what they're doing. Is there any way you can kind of describe how you got into sociology and the world of academia? Yeah, I, I grew up in Montreal and I was a soccer player. And I, uh, I lived in Scotland, tried to play pro soccer. And I got a soccer scholarship at Cleveland State University. And a friend of mine gave me a copy of Escape from Freedom. And it mm. just, uh, that book just kind of made me more political. So I got involved in politics, something called the Democratic Socialists of America. It's a larger group now but at that time it was a smaller group with michael harrington and barbarian ryan and cornell west so i was mostly involved in that and then eventually i moved to new york city to move america to the left to try and be an activist in the dsa and uh enrolled in a sociology program uh, program and i always knew a lot about eric Fromm, so i made that my my dissertation topic why he became influential and why he became a forgotten intellectual so oh, that's that's so fascinating. And, and I, uh, I, I really want to kind of go there. Uh, but before we do that, we, we, so I'm just curious, when you first read Escape from Freedom, it wasn't necessarily for a class. It was just a friend kind of handing you the book. Yeah. What did you think about some of his ideas kind of at that stage in your life? Oh, it's just some of the things that really hit you. Well, the person who, who gave the book, Banyate College, they have this thing called CGEPs. Uh, in uh, they're kind of like community colleges in, in Canada and Quebec. Uh, but they're uh, but they're really kind of intellectually interesting places. So that it was an American draft resistor, draft dodger, you know, in a more prerogative way. <laughs> but I would say draft resistor, uh, who assigned the class. He was fleeing the Vietnam War, and assigned the book in the class. My friend gave it to me. So it was sort of like uh, it was about freedom. It was about individualism. It was about uh, an opposition to injustice and and. You know, the, the book was arguing for the defeat of Hitler, so it wasn't an anti-war book. Uh, it was actually arguing for entering into the war to defeat uh, to, to defeat Hitler. But the but the sensibility was a uh, one of freedom and and social justice and and, and uh, an anti-war. So it made me a, the book made me a socialist or a, a democratic socialist and, and helped me think about my life. You know, kind of think about what I what I what I wanted to do with my life to, to kind of do something with my life. Yeah, it was very... Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, in, in terms of you kind of growing up, if we can go maybe just a little bit further back, in terms of like your family, some of the values that you grew up with, did you find that Fromm sort of brought those back out or was it going against some of the things that you maybe grew up with? Yeah, I think it was sort of like taking some of the things that I grew up with and sort of taking them to another level. So I was born in uh, Glasgow, Scotland. And from Irish, Irish uh, you know, family who their ancestors had come from Donegal in Ireland, you know, in Ireland, and so 
and my favorite soccer team was Glasgow Celtic. It's kind of like a, a left wing. <laughs> <you know? laughs> so uh, my father was a labor voter, labor party voter, and you know, uh, but not a not a radical other than that. Uh, so uh, so it was kind of um, taking some of the, the social democratic and left values of my and kind of some of the elements of Catholicism, I think, but uh, radicalizing them and taking them in, in a more, uh, you know, in a more individualistic and a more sustained intellectual way. It also may be an intellectual guy. All the things that he cited and talked about, I wanted to go and go and read them, you know? And so gotcha. I didn't have an intellectual background. I didn't have a, you know, a, you know, so my dad worked in the airlines as a machinist for, for Air Canada for years. So. Uh, so it was it wasn't um yeah it was it introduced me to the world of the intellectual more than uh reflected my uh my upbringing okay okay beautiful now go, going forward to kind of graduate school and you said you did your dissertation on how eric Fromm emerged into this person that was very well known and then exploring maybe his decline or how he in some ways became forgotten C could you trace that out a little bit like like what's what's some of the research that you did there yeah, so I mean, what I noticed uh, you know, maybe before I, I get to the to what I published out of it is sort of sort of the, the inspiration was like what I noticed is that uh, in the democratic socialism America, this uh, left wing group in in the U.S., I knew so many people who had become socialists by reading Eric Fromm, like it happened to me. But as I became more of an activist in the center of the organization. At one point I was the national chair of the Democratic Socialism America Youth Section. So I knew the leadership uh, at, at kind of the national level. Uh, but those people, uh, they, they didn't really follow Eric Fromm. They tended to dismiss him. So he seemed to have a, an influence in bringing people into the movement, but in the leadership, uh, his influence dropped off and I noticed the same thing in sociology, that I knew a lot of people who became sociologists because they read Eric Fromm, but in the top journals or the top universities, people dismissed him as a simplistic thinker, not really a sociologist. So I saw this sort of pattern. Interesting. So, so that's what I wrote my dissertation on, how to become, there's a famous American, uh, it's actually, she's Canadian, but she teaches at Harvard, called Michelle Lamont, and she wrote a famous article uh, called How to Become a Dominant French Philosopher, The Case of Jack Derrida. So I flipped that around and said, that's how you become a, a, a famous uh, philosopher. How do you become a forgotten intellectual? How do you have a reputation and then lose it? And then what does that tell us about how boundaries between fields are are uh, constituted and how uh, how the, the intellectual world works. So that's what I wrote about. I kind of wrote a, a bunch of articles, a series of articles that got me uh, tenure that was uh, on his relationship to psychoanalysis, his relationship to the Frankfurt School, his relationship to uh, to the political left, and uh, wrote a whole series of one. But the most important one is how to become a forgotten intellectual, the case of Eric Fromm. Got you. Now, I, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of different threads we could follow and it's a kind of a complicated kind of reality, but is there any way you could maybe highlight some of the major points in, in terms of how he got forgotten? 
I would say there's four things, really. Okay. Like, uh, the first thing is he was a Marxist who popularized Marx in the United States. No one did more to popularize the United, uh, Marx in the United States than Eric Fromm in the 40s and 50s. And so conservatives and liberal Cold War intellectuals hated Fromm. But that created a controversy. But Orthodox Marxists who supported Stalinism hated Fromm even more than the conservatives. So he kind of got it from both sides. That's one piece of the story. The second piece of the story is he was a Freudian. Probably no one other than Freud and maybe Eric Erickson did as much to popularize Freud in, in the United States. So he, anyone who, who disliked Freud disliked Fromm, but the controversy helped create his reputation. But the Orthodox Freudians hated Fromm even more than the anti-Freudians did because he was challenging some key orthodoxies. Mm. In, in Marx, he challenged Stalinism. In Freud, he, he challenged Orthodox libido theory, the Oedipal complex. So those are the sort of the, the two key things. I would say when, he, when, he, when you look at how institutions of knowledge get constituted in disciplines, he also got caught between the, the, the disciplines. So he wasn't really a psychologist, he wasn't really a social psychologist, and he wasn't really a sociologist. So that um, being in between created uh, influence because he was putting things together that hadn't been put together. But over time, there was nobody there willing to promote his ideas with the institutional uh, prestige of, uh, of a discipline. But the fourth thing, this is really the key thing, he did all this, uh, being a Freudian, anti-Marxist, Marxist, or anti-Stalinist Marxist, and an interdisciplinary scholar, he did all this to mass publics, writing as a public intellectual, not as a specialized academic scholar. So writing to the public got him famous, but it also created envy and criticism from, uh, from intellectual elites and academic elites, and they ultimately uh, you know, attacked his reputation over a period of time, and that's what you—that's what you get. <laughs> a once oh, famous, wow. a once famous inf intellectual who's still popular among the public, but the intellectual elite dismiss him. That's the story of Eric Fromm, I would say. Gotcha. That's that's great. You know, I've actually wondered. One of the things that's drawn me to him lately is just how clear he is, and his writing style is just so digestible. I, I've wondered if that. Kind of worked against him in more academic intellectual circles if, if they critiqued him for that i mean i think that's key that's why i loved him so much and in the early you know the early years of my becoming an intellectual of sorts of myself is like i go oh wow you know i can understand that i mean it's complicated i gotta spend some time on this and maybe i should go read some more stuff but i could basically understand this and it spoke to me and it made sense uh, as I as I went up the academic hierarchy, I realized that a lot of people were making academic reputations on the opposite <laughs> and kind of and kind of you know saying uh, you know telling people uh, what they already know in language that they can't understand. You know, so <laughs> yeah. And Fromm was doing the opposite. He was telling us something that we sort of knew but couldn't really see see or didn't really get. 
but in a language we could understand. And I think that's key. And that's what led me to, you know, why I'm interested in the comparison between Fromm and Peterson, because I've worked this out all with the Fromm case. But I do think that's true. I think there is an institutional bias against clear writing in the academy and among in uh, elite intellectuals. Yeah, no, I could totally see that. And I know it's, it's a, at least for the, the common person, I would see that as a bit of a shame, but I could see how that dynamic would play out in academic circles. Yeah, yeah, I know, I think it's a, it's a terrible shame. And that is part of the thing is that sometimes, you know, and this is where, you know, I don't think we want to make Fromm into a hero, you know, because uh, right. he was very influential. He has, he, he makes, he makes mistakes. He says things that are, that are wrong or in, t in retrospect, you say that doesn't, that's not right. Uh, but he said it so clearly that it's obvious that it's wrong. Uh, and some of the academics, I think, like the Adorno and the say Marcuse, they say things in such an abstract way that, that you know you have generations of grad students sitting around trying to figure out what they really, <laughs> what they're really seeing, and sometimes not seeing that there's just some mistakes there or some some biases. So, so I agree. I think that's a shame, but I think we need to intellectuals and academics need to push forward and emphasize clear writing, uh, clear communication. And then ultimately it's a kind of a, it's a democratic intellectual, not an mm. aristocratic elitist or experts telling people uh, what they need to, what they need to think is, uh, I, I think love that Neil, man, that resonates with me quite a bit. Yeah. Now I know one of the things that you've said in, in one of the interviews that I listened kind of in preparation for this conversation is that maybe one of the downsides of from becoming more popular and almost even famous through some of his popular writings is he didn't do as much like peer reviewed stuff and maybe he yeah. started quoting himself a little bit too much. I wonder yeah. if you could kind of speak to that. Yeah, I think that that's true. I think, you know, you think about there's a public intellectual, the phrase comes from Russell Jacoby, who's an American historian who wrote about the, the, you know, the, the fall of the public intellectual and the rise of the expert. And uh, that, that phrase comes from Jacoby. But there's also something called, this, is, this, calls, this comes from uh, Louis Kozer, uh, a very important socialist sociologist who was very influential on me when I was young at Descent Magazine. But he coined the phrase, the celebrity intellectual. Hmm. And so a, a, when a public intellectual becomes so famous, they, there's, a, there's a dynamic of the celebrity process that I think allows you to to reach a bigger audience, but you you basically are not you're you're not surrounded. There's a tendency that, that you don't you're not you're not surrounded by people who are telling you that's wrong or or surrounded by other academics or scholars who are who are equals. Uh, because gotcha. you can bypass the uh, you can bypass the the peer review process or even the critique of other intellectuals, not through academic peer review, but for intellectual journals, you can kind of bypass it. So I do think people, there's a tendency for famous celebrity intellectuals to get a bit lazy, to re you know, to, to rehash uh, kind of core arguments and, and uh, maybe kind of become too self-referential. And I think some of that happened with Fromm. He pulled back from that near the end of his life and he wrote The Anatomy of Human Destructiveness and Social Character in a Me Mexican Village. So he so sort of he, he entered back into into sort of trying to do high level uh, work, uh, consulting and engaging with other intellectuals of, of the same stature. Uh, but but there's a tendency, I think. 
Okay, toward that, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I know in a moment, I wanna kinda jump into thinking about Fromm and then Jordan Peterson, who I, I never would've put together, but but I just really love some of the things you do with that. I guess, uh, just maybe one last question about Fromm that I have is, and, and I think it will connect to the Peterson thing too. Didn't he, throughout his career, also serve as a psychoanalyst? He was actually working with people as well as doing his, his writing? Yeah, and no, I mean, and, and that is part of the, the story, right? It's sort right. of the, 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 the creativity of Fromm came from putting together things from different fields. So yeah, he, he was primarily a psychoanalyst. Uh, that's what he did for a living. Uh, he did a PhD in sociology with Max Weber's younger brother, Alfred Weber. So he had a PhD in sociology, but he essentially became a clinical psychoanalyst. That's what he, that's what his passion was and his career was. And he, he played a role in psychoanalytic institutes, you know, in Berlin and then in, in the United States. So that's what he would do in the, uh, you know, that's what he would do in the morning and in the afternoon he would write that kind of, so, uh, so he, uh, so he was combining uh, and, and combining the psychoanalytic insights that he got from working with patients with the broad reading that he, you would get from being a public intellectual or a sociologist, that was creative and that created new ideas. But it's also difficult to, to sustain, right? Mm. Because he was a little bit stretched too thin and people would uh, object to taking psychoanalytic ideas into sociology or taking sociological ideas into psychoanalysis. That's true. Yeah. yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so so Neil, I, th I think now is a pretty good time to just kind of jump into you know kind of the Fromm Peterson connections and and ways that they they kind of diverge. I, I guess I want to start by asking you like, how did you get into doing sociological research on Jordan Peterson? Yeah, well, I think that. You know this this model that I had of kind of different fields being a psychoanalyst, a sociologist, kind of a public intellectual, a celebrity sure. intellectual. That was a pretty developed model that it came out of the Fromm case. And I studied David Reisman, and I studied Noam Chomsky, you know, and I I, I studied other intellectuals. Uh, so I had a um, you know had had a framework. And then, you know, I am of the democratic left, but one of the things I liked about Fromm is he was, and the dissertation was called Escape from Orthodoxy instead of oh, Escape from Orthodoxy. So Fromm was willing to challenge orthodoxies. So I am of the left, but I want, I, I'm, I, I, I'm sort of drawn to, to left-wing intellectuals who challenge orthodoxies on their own side. So that like was that. Sort of the framework that I, that I had and then at McMaster University, and so I used to run a, 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 I used to run a salon in my apartment in downtown Toronto, where I'd have academics and non-academics come, and just in my living room we would talk ideas, sort of trying to break out, break out of like academic seminars or oh, status hierarchies. And so I was, I had somebody, a, a Canadian journalist on my, in my salon this, the day that uh, Jordan Peterson was cancelled at McMaster University at my university. He was giving a talk and the students protested and prevented him from speaking. His, uh, his wife took a, a you know, video of him outside where he was uh, you know, 
basically deplatformed. People were yelling and calling them names. So he went out into the lawn outside and continued with his talk. And that was the rise, the beginning of this rise to fame. Gotcha. That was the very beginning of this. So I was looking at this and going, well, I think in political terms, I was going, I think that this is a serious mistake, a tactical error to, uh, to deplatform someone. And he's someone politically, I politically disagree with Jordan Peterson on, uh, especially recently, you know, I always did, but especially recently, but I disagree with him politically. I have intellectual differences with him. I, uh, I am not a Jordan Peterson, uh, you know, uh, accolade in political intellectual terms, but I just thought that was a mistake. And, and also, um, I think that, uh, I did. I, I rejected this idea that he was wrong about everything. We should just shut him down, and uh, and and he's wrong about everything. So I started to watch that, and then because of this framework that I had already worked out with Eric Fromm, I started to see some of the obvious parallels. Fromm was a psychoanalyst, practicing psychoanalyst. Peterson was a clinical psychologist. They, uh, they were really interested in authoritarianism. So Fromm famously wrote about the authoritarianism of the left, right? He, he was part of that Adorno authoritarian personality research tradition. He helped create that before Adorno, but he insisted that there was an authoritarianism of the left. Peterson was suggesting the same thing. The, uh, Fromm wrote a, a famous self-help book, The Art of Loving. Uh, Peterson wrote, you know, 12 rules for life. They were both kind of, um, they, they were Freudians, but Fromm was anti-Jungian and, uh, but Fromm was really interested in religion and spirituality right. and Buddhism, just like, uh, Peterson, uh, was, uh, they were basically left that they were leftist in their youth. Peterson was in the NDP, you know, early in his life, but, uh, at, but they're, they're sort of political, but not really like party people. Neither of them are really like a, a party person. Mm. Fromm was involved in the Socialist Party, but I was really involved in the Socialist Party or the Democratic Socialist Mirror. I was kind of really like my whole life for a decade was in that. So, uh, so you know, some people who study Fromm say, well, he was involved in the Socialist Party. He, and he was, but he, he was kind of on the margins of it. And it's a similar kind of relationship that Peterson has to the right, he's involved in the right, and he's getting more involved in it. But it's more like they use him than than he's sort of he's famous. He's sort of a resource for the right, and that was the same kind of thing that happened with Fromm. That the socialist movement would use uh, Fromm because he was famous. He would bring people in. So there's a lot of parallels. So I just started to to think about those. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I well okay. Well, one quick question I did have about Peterson from your like sociological perspective is: Do you feel like recently he's gotten even more right or or involved in certain things that's making him even more extreme? Well, my 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 uh, you know the, my model about Peterson is that there's eight sociological roles that he plays. So he's an academic, he's a therapist, he's an entrepreneur. He's a father figure. He's a spiritual leader. He's an innovator in the media. He's a political intellectual, and he's a celebrity. Hmm. And he does all of those eight things, 
And that's the source of the controversy and the fame. And also it creates chaos in his life, right? So, but if you take these two roles, the academic and the clinician, those are the, the roles that keep him a bit more grounded. So if you, even today, if you watch, I saw him in Budapest, I went to see him, I'm doing research on George Soros and conspiracy theories. So I was in Budapest and I went to one of his big talks and he's not that right wing when he talks to the, the readers of Beyond Order, when he goes into the clinical role or the father figure, he's not that right wing at all. He's actually quite engaged with the, with the people's personal problems and kind of compassionate mm -hmm. kind in a way. And when he's an academic, uh, he's not that right wing because he's engaged with the empirical literature, you know, and talking about neurosciences and, and various things. So those two roles, the clinician and the academic, they kept him grounded. When people deplatformed him at the university and drove him out of the clinical role, those two uh, pillars were taken away. And so what I think, what I then I think what you see is in response to the attacks and you know some of his own choices and personal uh, troubles. You know, I don't think it helped being in Moscow and that whole mental health. It wasn't improved by that. But he's basically kind of gone to the people who supported him, and he's become more explicitly uh, right wing. And I think he's going, uh, you know, un unhinged almost sometimes and ungrounded. But that's my sociological analysis of that. Yes. Yeah. No. Thank you. No. That's. that's I feel like that's really helpful because I just have so many questions about all this. But one, one, I guess, for Peterson, and and just a little bit of background on me. Uh, in a lot of my clinical work, I end up working with like young adult males who I think are really looking for a father figure and they, yeah. they turn to his writing and a few others to I think find that. I think they're doing it unconsciously, but I, I wonder if you could just kind of speak to that dimension of his of his role is, is as, as father figure. Like, how do you understand that? How did that happen? What does that mean? I, yeah. I'd love to hear your, your take on that. Yeah, I mean, if you go back to the Fromm thing, like Fromm taught in, in universities, we taught a little bit, but he was never really like a real professor. You know, he kind of like taught part-time. And if you think about Peterson in, as a professor, that class that he did, you know, the Maps of Meaning class, I mean, universities are not organized around giving advice and role models for life. They're organized around academic debates and a lot of young people are, you know, you get exposed to the literature and the review and my, my research agenda. And a lot of professors are just wrapped up in their, in their research agenda. It's not really that sure. interested in students, right? That's how the university is organized. So Peterson was different from the very beginning, the Maps of Meaning class. It's a class where he was basically talking directly and Fromm did the same thing. He would talk directly to the people and say, here's the path for, for living a, a good life. That's a different role from what academics do. So he was doing that from the very beginning, Peterson was. And I think that when you take us into the stage as innovator, you know, doing it on YouTube and, and Twitter and things, uh, but when, especially YouTube, where you have a chance of having a longer conversation. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, I think he's talking uh, the way I see it is, what's wrong with the universities or what's wrong with our society that we're not providing the guidance uh, that uh, that Peterson is? That's what I kind of, I see it 
that way. There's a kind of a vacuum. I think a lot of young people uh, want to to talk about there is a there's a crisis of masculinity. There's not a focus on some of the uh, and I think sometimes sometimes academics even dismiss it. You saw it in the you saw it in the way that people reacted to to Peterson. And I don't agree with all, some of the things he says. And this is a complicated conversation about young men. But the idea that you would attack somebody because he has a big audience of young men, that seems to me kind of bizarre. I mean, yeah. shouldn't, shouldn't, be, shouldn't we uh, be going, okay, that's, that's great. What is, he, what is he offering these young men? What do they need? What's, what's wrong with the society that people feel uh, without a, a mooring? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I, I think one of the similarities I see between Fromm and Peterson is how directly they address like our fundamental existential needs. As yes, we, I, I agree. I, I think that's one of the draws for, for both of them. Even, even though I think they come to maybe different conclusions and they look at it from different perspectives, I think they really are focusing on those existential needs. And I just think that's so important. From uh, from talks all about Dostoevsky and very influenced by Nietzsche. And so he's a, yeah, so absolutely that they're very, very similar. They're dealing with these existential crisis of what it means to be human. Cornell West does this too, you know, sort mm. of like what does it mean to be human? Uh, universities don't do that, <laughs> you know, uh, as much as they, they should. And, uh, and the rest of the society, you know, social media and corporate world, they're interested in selling people things to, <laughs> to profit from human right. needs. They're not really kind of focused on on uh, getting at these core human needs or using human needs. Uh, so there's a big vacuum, you know, and I think that, yeah, a lot of people are going by. they successful in holding together a family, raised a family. Uh, it's very hard to do that now. And some young people in buying, buying a house. So, oh, yeah. you know, it makes sense that people might, might, uh, might find that uh, appealing. And, uh, and, he, and he takes on the role. He's, a, he's, he's willing to, to step in and, and give advice. Oh, yeah. No, completely. Now, now let me ask you this. So I know there's tons of differences in their, in their actual views on things, but I think you have some interesting ways to talk about in their, in their kind of rise to fame, what are some of the differences that you saw between Fromm and Peterson from a sociological perspective? I mean, if you think about it, like, uh, I mean, the first thing is, you know, there's a, a very interesting book called The Seeds of the 60s. It's a sort of an intellectual history of books and ideas that created the social protests of the 1960s. And Fromm is a key figure in that, in helping uh, create, uh, he, had, he had an influence on Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement. He had an influence on the anti-Vietnam War movement. He was influential in socialism and human rights campaigns. He still gets like a Amnesty International still gets $100,000 of royalties from Fromm's books. Fromm donated his royalties to Amnesty International. He helped fund oh. them in early years. Uh, he, was, he helped create a kind of an ecological consciousness, and he had a kind of a certain kind of proto-feminism uh, and opposed the Vietnam War very prominently. So he was one, and his whole focus on conf critiquing conformity was a, was part of the 1950s that led to the 60s, a kind of a critique of the alienation of the 50s. So Fromm's ideas helped create, to the extent that ideas and intellectuals create movements, 
movements create ideas. Ideas create movements. It's not as simplistic as Fromm created in the 60s. But Fromm had an influence on the 1960s. And Jordan Peterson's ideas are a response to the 60s, a critique of the 60s. You know, that we've gone too far. There's too much individualism, too much sexual freedom, too, right? I mean, he's sort of a... No, it's such a, a good point. Yeah. Yeah. It's a kind of a... Now, uh, so, that's, so that's one thing. It's sort of like they're... I, I would say also that, you know, and I, this is why I think that, that the from Peterson, if I had to say one, the core thing about why the from Peterson comparison is so interesting and so important. The other thing that they're different about is that, um, but if you, you have to put in sort of like the orthodox left into the picture. So, so many of the orthodox left were ba are basically saying, it's all about structures. You need mm -hmm. to change the structures. Uh, you know, the, uh, some people would joke about sort of the, you know, what a, uh, how many sociologists does it take to screw in a light bulb? None, <laughs> because, none, because the light bulb doesn't need changing. It's society and it's social structure. <laughs> so the whole kind of, you know, that, that sort of thing is very dominant. And sure. conservatives flip it around and say, you got to focus on yourself, clean your room, right? right. So, so Fromm was unique and he's basically saying, you got to clean your room and you have to change the structures of society you need to do that. both and uh so that's why i think peterson goes too far uh in in the one direction but he has an insight that the left has forgotten that i think we have to take up yeah no i, I agree i think that's a great point now didn't you also reflect on in terms of their their, their rise to fame there's a difference in that from it was, was it the art of loving that, that really put him on the map? Or maybe it was Escape from Freedom. So it was like a, a, a book. It was ideas. Whereas Peterson was less his books at first and more kind of the controversy politically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, Fromm, you know, Fromm became famous quite late in life. He was 41 mm -hmm. where Escape from Freedom. So he wrote Escape from Freedom. He had this book called in, 19, in 1941. Who, and he was reviewed in the New York Times and reviewed in all this, the top sociology journals. He wrote a book called Man for Himself in 1947. Oh, yeah, that's a great book. Yeah, that also got reviewed in the Times. He was very influential with, uh, he influenced someone called David Reisman, who became the top sociologist uh, of the time, the top public sociologist of the time. So, and the Sane Society was in 1955, and that also sold 7 million copies and was reviewed in the top sociology journals. And, uh, and also in the Times and the, in the intellectual journals. So by, by the time he was 56, uh, Fromm was at the height of his fame. And so it's quite different from Peterson. Peterson really kind of burst onto the scene uh, at, at that period of his time of life in the mid 50s. Uh, and he, before that, sometimes left-wing intellectuals like to dismiss uh, Peterson his career a bit. I, I, I kind of reject that. I politically disagree with Peterson you know, very strongly, but, but I'm not going to make up stuff that he wasn't a successful psychologist. He got cited a lot. He knew a lot. He was, uh, you know, he was quite influential, but in a narrow academic field. So he wasn't right. public. He tried. He, he was on the thing in Toronto. We have this thing called in Ontario. We have a thing called uh, the agenda, which is a TV show, and he used to be a publicly funded TV show. So he he did stuff, and he was, uh, he, he but he was he, he really burst into to fame, where from uh, it was a longer process, 
uh, over, over decades. And when Fromm wrote The Art of Loving, he was at the height of his fame. And so The Art of Loving was the beginning of the decline because that's when he started to be associated with self-help books which are low okay. static right this is where i think you know this is one thing i really agree with with peterson uh and from i was just listening to a to a video of peterson the other day and he was basically saying you know when he has a when, when he did practice of course he's been driven out of that and attacked by the college of uh of the therapists and psychologists in in ontario but uh but he would say when he was working with people, he would give them self-help books or encourage people to read self-help books. So he's not contemptuous of self-help books. Uh, neither was Fromm. He wrote The Art of Loving. But a lot of academics are kind of contemptuous of self-help books. They sort of put it down. And mm. so I think that's just the snobbery. You know, okay. and, it's, and it's the difference between being a clinician and being, a, being an academic. Oh yeah, no, totally. So, do you think they just see self-help as uh, reductionistic or yeah, not 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 rooted in the contemporary scholarship and things like that? Yeah, exactly. When the, really the purpose is, or not, and or 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 not new, like it's not like a new insight, right? But oh, I see. Of course, you know, because that's the, the the logic of the academy. You have to come up with an original contribution that's innovative and new, right? And so, but the category of the self-help book, it, it, the 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 value evaluation you want to make of a self-help book is not as if it's new or innovative it's whether it helps people <laughs> i mean that's a whole different uh you know it's a different way of judging it right sure now okay this is great uh so neil can, can you for a moment reflect on i know peterson ended up debating slavoj zizek yeah and uh you, you've written a little bit about that i'm just wondering kind of sociologically what you thought about that and and then i guess what I'm kind of curious about too is, I, I wonder if we could, you know, in terms of a, a thought experiment, explore, you know, if Fromm and Peterson would would be in a debate, what, what right. would that look like? What might they talk about? I'm just curious if you could like explore that. Yeah, when I had that salon, I was telling you about it in my, my apartment. Yeah. We, had, uh, we watched it uh, in my apartment, the debate, because it was down the street from us in Toronto, right? Yeah. So we, we just watched it and, um, and I had like, uh, a number of young people who are Jordan Peterson supporters and a, a number of young people who are grad students who are Zijek supporters. And we, we talked about it, you know, we, now it, it see in some ways Zijek has replaced Fromm as the okay. public intellectual psychologist, the leftist public intellectual psychologist who's famous, right? He's sort of like the, the Fromm right. of today. Right. But, but the thing about, this is where the academic world that exists that didn't exist in the, in uh, when Fromm wrote, everything's become more academic and more arcane and mm. more and Lacanian. So sure. he's kind of like Fromm, but he doesn't he doesn't talk in the clear way that Fromm uh, does. So I th and that's also sort of like the celebrity uh, culture has gotten even more uh, extreme. So Fromm was famous, but he didn't play the celebrity role. And I think Zizek kind of likes to play the, the celebrity role. He kind of revels in it, right? Sure. So, you know, I, I'm not a, I, I am skeptical of Lacanian analysis, and I'm skeptical of some of the ideas that, uh, that Zizek promotes, although sometimes he goes against left-wing orthodox ideas, and I think in a ways it's useful. But I, I would say that, 
the, the Zizek uh, model for the public intellectual is a move backwards, you know, as opposed mm. to something like Fromm that could, you know, actually engage mass publics, not just grad students, right? It's kind of like he's a public right. intellectual for grad students and professors and people in the, you know, people in the art world, say, you know, are kind yeah. of built, right? I mean, that's not the other difference between Fromm and, and Peterson, I would say, if you think sociologically, that, and this is where I think Peterson has something useful to say that Frommians could learn from. Because I would say that Fromm's base, the people who liked his books the most, were, were people who wanted to go into social work or psychology or sociology, or they, they, they were kind of going into the cultural fields or the sure. white collar uh, you know, professions. He, he didn't really speak to uh, blue collar workers in the, in the same way that he, he did. He had a base, you know, he's involved in the Socialist Party, but it wasn't, it wasn't, I think Peterson does a better job of speaking to those, to the, to those populations, sometimes with politics that I disagree with, you know, that yes. would be same critical, but he, but he sort of speaks to that. And he also speaks to students who are in the sciences and engineering, you know, in a way that Fromm did it. You know, Fromm's base were people in humanities and the social sciences. That's sort of the, the 60s, right? The kind of the, you know, the that that's sort of uh, so. Um, so I think that you can see the same thing in uh, the Zizek Peterson debate. It's sort of like Peterson speaking to grad students and people in humanities and the social sciences, uh, and Peterson speaking to people in the sciences and kind of engineering students and kind of the the uh, you know the, uh, the 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 more pro popular popular social classes. So I think that, uh, I, I think we got to get out of the Zject uh, Peterson debate. It's kind of like a celebrity. It was a bit of a circus in a way. You know, like right, a, right. You know, I mean, I think Zject knows a lot more about Marx. He showed, he, he, you know, he really kind of showed his superiority as a, as a kind of a Marxist scholar. But, sure. uh, but showing people your superiority as a Marxist scholar is not really the same thing as engaging in debates about about public issues and that's what i think we should move the move the discussion forward on, on that yeah yeah that's great now i i know in your your piece where you write about peterson and from you kind of end with some suggestions for, for scholars for for thinkers on on how we can learn from from or, or how to how to how to not how to go against Peterson, but, but how to maybe engage with him. I don't know if I want to say at his level, but but what, what are some of your thoughts on how Fromm can inform how we move forward in terms of engaging some of these things? Well, I mean, one thing, you know, Fromm and, and Marcuse were critics. They, they had a, you know, you know, had a debates and, and there's a number of people now in, in uh, who are interested in Fromm who, who used to be followers of Marcuse, and I, I think it's a good thing that the, the conflict between the critical theorists gets, uh, gets overcome and people see that they have a lot more in common. But one of the things that Marcuse said that, that I really disagree with and that Fromm never supported was this notion of, uh, of repressive tolerance. Marcuse argued that we should have free speech for the left and Deplatforming, he didn't use the term deplatforming, but we should shut down 
people of the right. And this is, uh, I think, uh, a position that is quite prominent today, that people have a focus on shutting down opponents or showing uh, that their opponents are motivated by bigotry and racism. And, and sometimes they are. Sometimes they are. But I, would, I think that the thing about Fromm is he stressed a positive politics going out and talking to people, talking to, to mass publics. So mm -hmm. I think that the, the really the issue is can, the, can Fromm's ideas help us talk to people and figure out solutions to the problems that Peterson is speaking to in a better way. That I that's love sort that of so much. It's not so much that Fromm's smarter than Peterson. The question is, you know, can a Frommian influenced perspective help us think about this crisis of masculinity, say? Can Fromm's ideas help us think about the crisis of the universities? If you look at the universities, I mean, I, I have trouble, I have some very good students, and McMaster's a good university, uh, but. There's, there's, there's a lot of students. I can't get them to read the syllabus, never mind mm. the books. And Peterson is actually creating, uh, uh, you know, an upsurge in reading, right? And people are reading uh, Nietzsche and Dostoevsky and, and these long-form podcasts that you're doing, some yeah. of them here. I mean, this is the sort of, this is where he's an innovator. I mean, we need to, the universities need to, to innovate and think about new ways of engaging with ideas. And so we can do the innovation, but we got to get to the actual content, uh, not yeah. closing out people we don't like, like Peterson. Yeah, no, totally. I, you know, you, you reflected a bit on, on your article on how when, when, when he had his crisis with anxiety and, and was hospitalized, that people were almost wishing his death and, and saying all these things online, like his opponents. I, I wonder if you could speak to that. I see so much of that on social media. When, when you disagree with someone, just uh, almost forgetting their humanity. Yeah, I, I think I was appalled at that. I mean, people were almost just wishing that he would die almost. And, I mean, the man has a, a family and he has right. a, and he's not a, he's not a Nazi. He's come on at this. Uh, I disagree with him fundamentally. And especially recently, he's going more to the right. And I disagree with him even stronger. But uh, to, 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 to wish him ill uh, in, in that way, or to also to make up stuff, you know, that the, the criticisms are not always that accurate. There are real, and then maybe that's where the, you know, the from comparison can be helpful. Let's get at the real issues, you know, Young versus from versus Peterson. How do we think of psychology? What is the crisis of work? What is the crisis of the university? How can Fromm or Peterson help us think about it? And other thinkers, we, you know. Absolutely. So we have to get to the content, not the, and it look, you make, you, you look weak when you're basically, and people are suspicious when you're, when you're basically saying, don't listen to that person. Right? People go, well, I've got to go listen to that person. Now I'm going to go like, listen to him. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. It's totally understandable. Oh, Yeah. Okay, so so Neil, can you tell us a little bit more when you talk about this salon? I don't know if you still run it, but but I'm I'm now just really curious about how that started, and and then I'm I'm curious if, if it's a if it's a manifestation of some of the things we've been talking about in terms of it sounds like maybe you were bringing together people that had different views, or not everyone had to agree. Yeah. I, I wonder if that could be a bit of a microcosm for what we've been talking about. 
Yeah, I mean, I got the idea from the Saint Society. If you if you go look at uh, from 1955, the Saint Society, he basically says, and this is where I think he was right. I mean, he saw he didn't see the internet, but he he saw kind of uh, you know new technologies, and he knew that they would be places where people could be manipulated, and so his argument was that you needed to create small uh, communities of, of democratic communities of discussion mm-hmm. and that you had to have these small small kind of like american small town debates and and uh kind of and so grassroots kind of the democracy deliberative democracy at the grassroots so i was influenced by that so that's what i thought uh and i do think that's one one of the things that's happened i'm quite influenced by jonathan Haid and his heterodox organization he's a psychologist social psychologist at NYU. And I do I do think it is true that universities, they used to be, I mean, in the, in the 30s, there were a lot of Nazi doctors and professors and students. So it's not true that universities were always left-wing. If you were Marxist, you couldn't be in the universities in Germany, but uh, in, in during the Nazi period. But the, the um, it, t- today's university is more and more liberal and left dominated. And I do think that creates a kind of an echo chamber and it's one of the things that's different about Fromm. Fromm would engage with conservative thinkers. And he worked with David Riesman, who was a very prominent American liberal. So from the very beginning, Fromm was encouraging us to talk to, think with, uh, and engage with conservatives, liberals uh, across political camps. He maintained his democratic socialist, radical humanist care. Uh, Kieran Durkin has a terrific analysis of radical humanism in Fromm. Yeah, I'm reading that book now. It's so good. It's a terrific book. And so, but but Fromm was always engaging with conservatives. And he he's actually sort of like looking at, you know, traditional conservatives. I mean, conservative, aristocratic uh, thinkers, right? And obviously there's some problems with that kind of anti-democracy. And we have a gender mm-hmm. and race frame, uh, you know, and colonial frame. All this, all this important stuff needs to be uh you know picked up and engaged with but there's still a principle of engaging with people across uh political camps so that was a big uh so the salon for me was like putting together these this Brahmian idea of small town discussions but also an opposition to hyper professional discourse so when people came to speak at the salon i i said no theory no method talk about the issues no introductions with how famous you are or you know, and I had a, I had a lot of quite well-known people, but I didn't go all okay. along. I, I really just tried to discourage um, credential card playing. You know that gotcha. listen because, and and then because it was done that way, I would go out of my way to have conservatives come, and people who I knew who were more moderate or conservative, and I think it was a better conversation. So yes, mm-hmm. I think I think that we need to. Uh, I think Brahms are uh, it's really the opposite of of Marcuse is sort of deplatform the right and conservatives and build a, a kind of a left. I would like to build the left, but in dialogue with uh, people who are moderate and uh, and principled conservatives, conservatives who believe in democracy and are not demagogues and, uh, you know, Trumpian, uh, you know, apologists for, uh, you know, Right. No, absolutely. I'm so in line with that. I'm, I'm so grateful that we've connected and that you're kind of helping me think about some of these ideas because it's very inspiring. I, I guess, Neil, I mean, I know we've talked about quite a few things. Is there anything else about your scholarship or Fromm or the Fromm-Peterson connection that you've written about 
that you feel like maybe I've missed asking you about or something you just want to highlight before we kind of come to an end? No, I think, I think that's with I think we got at the, the core, the core thing. The core issue for me is Peterson's fame has something to do. We can talk about the eight roles that I, that I outlined. Sure. We can talk about the historical moment. We can talk about him as a person and his character uh, and his charisma in a certain sense. All this is true, but uh, ultimately, uh, Fromm became famous because of the issues that, that came on the table uh, in the 1960s, Fromm spoke to them. And there are a whole bunch of issues that are being put on the table. I think the university is in crisis. There is a crisis of masculinity in young people. There's an alienation and a kind of spiritual vacuum. Uh, the, there, the, there's a whole range of uh, economic and political crisis that we, a crisis of democracy. And so the key issue is uh, trying to figure out different answers to those crises uh, and put them, uh, put them on the table and try and help people uh, in their lives, not be dismissive uh, of, of, of people who are, who are trying to sort out their lives as, as you're doing in your clinical practice and as self-help book authors do and, and we all do in our own lives. So we have to kind of try and put these things together some way and building off from, I think, can take us in that direction. Absolutely, and it's so well said. Neil, thank you so much for your time. This has been amazing. I hope that we can continue to connect. And uh, yeah, I'm inspired and I wanna to continue to think about these ideas. Yeah, anytime. I, I really enjoyed the some terrific conversations and I really, I really value the work that you're doing. So keep it up. Thank you so much.